0: Welcome to the Overthinking a TV Recap Game of Thrones Season 4, Episode 3. <speaking in> the, <background> the Breaker of Chains. Boom, <speaking in the> boom. <background> I'm Pete Fenzel here, the host of our Overthinking a TV recap for Game of Thrones, and I'm very excited that you decided to join us. Whether you are watching us live streaming on YouTube, whether you are listening to us on our iTunes podcast, subscribe to that to get the TV recaps. It's a different podcast feed than our main podcast and the TFT podcast. encourage you to check out all of our podcast properties. We'll talk about that later. Or maybe you're watching this on YouTube as a video replay because you just can't stand to be away for our beautiful, smiling faces. And I don't blame you, because you know what? Uh, you know, the world is full of beautiful things, and uh, you might as well enjoy as many of them as possible before horrible things happen to you, which is perhaps one of the lessons on this episode, maybe. I'm not sure. But I have a panel here to figure it out. I really wanted to introduce it by saying every episode of Game of Thrones that we've talked about this season, we've, we've started talking about what we refer to as the Downton Abbey moment of the episode of Game of Thrones, which, of course, means the really misguided rape scene in the third episode that throws off the entire season, right? Is that that's what the, <laughs> uh, the Downton Abbey moment is? No, the Downton Abbey moment for us, and we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about that horrible idea, whatever. I mean, we'll have opinions of it, I'm sure. But we like to start by talking about a scene in the episode that expresses something that's kind of sideways to the main narrative thrust of the episode, but gives us a way of interpreting, a doorway into what's happening, a sense for what's taking place. In the episode. So, without further ado, I'd like to, to sort of run through our powerful panel of three tonight, counting myself. Uh, and I'll ask Shana Malowski. Shana, how are you doing?
1: I'm okay, Pete. How are you? I'm
0: good. I'm good. You sound. Uh, you sound. You sound okay. You sound all right. Are you? Were you pleased with this week's
1: episode? Uh, n- I would prefer not to be talking about it, honestly. Um, <laughs> but because I, you know, I vowed I would be here, and I. I'm not an oath breaker. I do not break my vows. So yeah. here I am to talk about this episode. Yeah.
0: Look, it is, should be the aspiration of every contemporary television executive that after they watch a show that you spent six million dollars an episode on, they say, I really, "I really wish I didn't have to talk about it because of my hobbies.")
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's really what you're shooting for is you, know, in this age of social. Going social, going global, going viral it 's just people being like i 'm really uncomfortable saying anything about what I just perceived, but anyway, uh, do you want to step back and give us like your take is there is there is there a doorway for you into the episode or is it just all about the problem the problem i 'm presumably the big one big problematic scene, but did you see anything else that you wanted to sort of see as a as an avenue an avenue to understanding
1: yeah sure, sure. Um, for me, the Downton Abbey moment uh, or scene. Was when the hound and Arya left that guy's house and the hound had stolen his silver. And Arya was like, What the hell, dude? And the hound said something along the lines of Look, this is a crappy world we live in. You know, that guy and his daughter are going to be dead probably in like five minutes, so we might as well take his money. Like, this world sucks. And when are you going to, like, how many people have to be beheaded in your family before you get this? Um, and as you were just saying, Pete, like, this was an episode that was super bleak and it kept being hammered home that this world is just horrifying. And it reminded me, um, io9 had an article a few weeks back about what they called um, naive cynicism, which I thought was a really interesting concept. And it was about this like, idea that there are writers and readers, especially of uh, science fiction fantasy, but really anything, who have sort of started to believe that if a work of art is super grim, that makes it more realistic than any type of art that isn't totally grim. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people kind of subscribe to that theory. I don't. um, But it does come up when people... um, I guess, discuss the gender and racial politics of Game of Thrones. That's sort of what the commenters like to say. Like, this is realistic. This is the way things are. And I think it's sometimes used as a way to, yeah, like I just said, shut down conversation. Almost in a way um, to link it to that one. Uh, I don't want to use the word problematic because people, like, shut down when they hear the word problematic. But, yes, that one problematic scene in the episode, um you know, when when you see it, you're like, I wish this weren't, or when I saw it, I wish this weren't happening, um, but, you know, there's this idea that, like, hey, women who watch this show, get used to it. This is the way the world is, and if you complain about it, you know, you're living in some sort of fantasy land, which I don't like to <laughs> agree with. I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, are Are you naive or non-naive cynics, because I, I am a cynic sometimes, but I think some uh, pieces of literature go a little too far towards the grim, dark end of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, one one show I'm watching right now that has that problem in spades is Sons of Anarchy, where it's mm. like, hey, let's have a, te- we don't know what to do, let's have something really terrible happen, right? right? <laughs> I'm, I'm in the story arc now where it's like, someone's baby has been kidnapped and by the ira and taken to ireland and given up for adoption to a random family and they can't find him and that's and it's just like and and then there's the guy standing on the docks being like no and i'm just like this is garbage (laughs) like this is not i mean you know yes human trafficking is a real thing but it's like you know i didn't tune into a story about like the you know the, the 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 gritty lives of the motorcycle gang in order for them to be like the terrorist took my child you know it's just like I imagine that probably doesn't happen very often to people in motorcycle gangs I don't know I mean obviously reality is not what we're aspiring to anyway Matt um um but yeah did you have a Matt so you have a choice now Matt you can either I have some unison here you can take the the blue pill right which is that you answer Shane's question right, <laughs> or you can take oh it matches your pill, shirt uh, or, or you could take the like the old good time Emporium token that I have, which is an, a defunct amusement indoor amusement park here in, in Massachusetts, uh, and answer my question as to what you see as the doorway into the episode. Which way are you going to go?
2: I could take this yellow highlighter here uh, as well, or uh, this novelty ruler from uh, uh, from a company somewhere. Um, I, well i'm I'm gonna do both, right? I'm never uh, I'm gonna pop both pills and hope it's gonna be a great night. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah it's uh i i definitely i mean i don't know In, internet commenters are are the worst china i agree wholeheartedly <laughs> with you but you know what most of them are 14 year old boys so i hope it i i hope it helps you know not to take them seriously uh, to realize that like though they create a toxic uh and hostile and awful environment um, you are in pretty much every way superior to them.
1: Oh, and, thank you. Uh,
2: <laughs> you know, and uh and they they are in fact they are in fact jerks. Um I don't know. The 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 internet like there is no there are no good internet comments about this the the rape of cersei by Jamie in Baylor Sept uh in this episode. Um there are no good articles about it. like the one on
1: the AV Club, and I'm not just saying that for reasons. But.
2: <laughs> the
1: AV, I mean, the AV Club one. The AV Club one
2: was okay, but I think the AV Club one suffered from a bit of an all men are Socrates um, uh, fault in its in its syllogism, right? Where like there there seemed to be implied in the logic that like. This is the second. This is the second sort of extra rapey departure from from the books. This is the uh, uh, there. There have been other departures from the books. Several of the other departures from the books are because we're we're shoehorning in more TNA and more exploitation of boobies. Uh, to court the all-important, like, crass bro demographic. Therefore, the rapier of the departures from the books is also to court the crass bro demographic because crass bros like things extra rapey, right? I I think it doesn't quite, that doesn't quite add up.
1: Right, and it's the, not clear. We can't really know what uh, the, as they say on the AV club, the HBO CEO of tits is really going for.
2: Right, the, um, you know, there's like a correlation. There's like a, you know, because tits correlation does not equal tits causation.
0: So, <laughs> so think, people watching our recap or listening to a recap who aren't aware of what happened this. With the sort of the meta narrative around this episode, well, <laughs> so so right, so there, so the internet went crazy. Um, wh- well, I mean, does... can I explain like what what the show, like what happened in the show relative to what happened in the books? I
1: like, think what, that's. What... Yeah, for sure. yeah really I guess gone. there are I
0: mean, people. Uh,
2: I guess there are people who don't watch the book, who don't read the books, who watch our recaps or listen to them. So yeah. that that would be fair. I I have a Downton Abbey scene, Pete. Though let's let's okay. follow this out because this is what's on everybody's mind. Yeah. So you know, we may as well we may as well go where the clickbait is. Yeah.
0: So I mean, so basically, what happens is that in the books when Jaime returns to King's Landing and finds that Joffrey has died, so he returns a little bit later, he meets Cersei at Joffrey's, you know, lying-in-state event, and they have, like, a really forced, really rough, not very affectionate sex scene right there with the body. And, but, and then while it is definitely, you know, like, semi-weird, coercive in certain ways, like there's an undercurrent of violence to it, it is ultimately consensual. And that is a pretty big difference. Um, and I believe so, the
1: quote um, I could get the book <laughs> was. Um, yes, do me now, Jamie. Yes, yes, do me now. Put it in. Do me now. So <laughs> don't, don't I would say uh, enthusiastic consent uh, at least at that point in the novel. Yes.
0: So so what happened in the show is they start with the rough part of the scene, right? They start with the rough part of the scene that's in the books, where it's like, ah, oh, don't do this now, blah 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 blah. But they don't get to the Cersei being put it in me. They cut it, or it's not there, right? It's, no, it's not, not
2: there. She's pretty. She's pretty uh, uh, sobby, and yeah. like you know, no, it's not right. No, it's not right. Is the thing she keeps repeating over and over and 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 um, pushing pushing him away. It's really, it's you know, it's the same thing that happened to Daenerys on her wedding night, where it's like it's very clear that like in the book, she's sort of gone on this journey from. Uh, you know, being very frightened to to being uh, enthusiastic about uh, consummating her marriage. She was and a child.
1: Let's just throw that out there. But yes,
2: <laughs> sure, yes. Not the first child bride in, in the Middle Ages, Shannon. Rough <laughs> no. world. Come on, it's a you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm, uh, but uh, still within the context of her own subjectivity, which is what we have access to in, in uh, you know, the kind of third-person, extremely close narrative and that, like, point-of-view technique that the books have, like, she, you know, she goes on a journey, she experiences a journey to being, uh, you know... What, on board with it on board with what <laughs> I was looking for a word. I, 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 you sound like Dan Savage when you say enthusiastic, right? But like yeah. uh I I want to uh, I guess there are worse things, but like yeah, yeah, yeah. To to being down with with um it's going down. With yeah with, <laughs> right, right. Um so uh yeah yeah and this is so this is the second time this is the second time that that uh that this has happened. I mean, I guess it, it, it makes it worse. And there, (laughs) right? Like, and there is like, there, there maybe is this heuristic of like, you know, the worst thing is the most convincing thing. Um, you know, I don't know. It, 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 uh, yeah, it, it sort of troubles me. Um, I'm not sure that there's a lot we can, we can say about it other than like, it, it happened. Here's the difference between it and the book, and it's it's troubling. I you know I'm not sure there's a generalization that we can pull out of uh, uh, that we can pull out of this choice in the adaptation, even though it's it's been made twice now to to get the um, to to take complex scenes and uh, complex sex scenes and in a way make them simpler, right? By making them clearly. Uh, clearly violations rather than being like a very like a very thorny, like difficult interaction between
1: people. But it wasn't clear to the people who made this episode, to the writers, um and maybe the director, I don't remember, um, on Alan Sepinwall's website on Hitfix, um he had talked to them and they were like, oh, you know, the scene started out as maybe non consensual, but by the end she was totally into it. So I'm not sure they were trying to make it more simplistic. It definitely came off that way and I'm kind of disturbed that what they thought they were showing was some sort yeah. of, you know, wonderful sex scene. I don't know. Well um,
0: I mean my 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 I read also the where Nikolai Costerwaldi who plays uh, yes, Jamie Lannister absolutely. said it had a similar sentiment and this leads me to think that they must have shot the whole scene and chopped the end off of it in editing. Like, I mean, that seems to me the most likely scenario is that they they maybe they did intend to do it and they just pared it back and pared it back until everything that's at the end of the scene that kind of justifies it is gone. And now all of a sudden they have this thing. I mean, I think it's important. One thing I will say is I think it's important, Matt, that you're intuiting that there isn't really something that we can unpack and generalize about this scene for the rest of the episode. It feels very out of place. And I feel like it feels like a mistake. Like, it feels like it was just, like, I didn't watch that. When I watched *Downton Abbey* and that happened, I was like, "Oh no!" Like they're doing this? Like really? Like oh, I watched this and I was like, "Why? What is happening? Like why is this taking place?" Now maybe that's because I already have an expectation for where the narrative is going, but it really felt like it was a, 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 an error. And I don't mean just like somebody slipped. I mean like a big somebody made the choice, and it feels like it was a real flub, a real screw up. And I, I would think- not be, you know. So go ahead.
1: Oh, sorry, Pete. Um, I think it sort of makes sense in the context of the episode, but in the context of the like the whole narrative arcs in season one, it seems like a huge flub. In this episode, they mentioned rape, or they didn't actually mention it. They alluded to rape like four or five times. Um, you know, with that religious guy and his daughter, like, oh, don't want her to get raped, and Sam is uh, sending Gilly away because we don't want her to get raped. It, uh, there was mention after mention. Um, of women having to be protected, or Mm -hmm. little girls having to be protected, um, because there are rapists everywhere, and they're really bad, which is interesting when you compare that to Jamie, who is, you know, over the past season at least, supposed to be sort of heroic. I mean, yes, he has sex with his sister, he did throw Bran out the window. Um, but the show and the books, especially, um, have been trying to rehabilitate his character. You got that big scene in the bathtub where you know he does this big speech. It's you, know, you. You really feel for him, and then he passes out. You want him, or sorry, I say you, but I mean I wanted him to get with Brienne, and now that's like all out the window. Like in a two-minute scene, it's just it's such a misstep for me.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so Matt. You want to give us the Downton Abbey moment of the episode?
2: Yeah, I you <laughs> know I do. Want to give you the, <laughs> <Yeah>. the Downton. <laughs> I, I do. stuff
0: happening. Yeah. But
2: so, anyway. I, well right and I I think you're right Pete that like that like it the, my reaction was like it was, it was that it was out of it, it was out of step with the rest of the scene because I thought the, the the rest of the episode um the uh because I thought the rest of the episode had like almost a like in lockstep thematic unity uh to it, and I would take I would take the thing that Shana points out about the the um, the concern for chastity for the men exercising like the protection of the women's chastity, um, and and sort of say I would I would posit that that is a special case of the the slightly more general theme of the episode, which for me was about relationships of custodianship or agency, mm-hmm. um, and protecting safety, protecting chastity. And sort of protecting the interests uh, of, um, uh, of uh, you know, another, another person or another group of people, another entity, right? And so my, my scene was the one between uh, uh, Sam and, and Gilly, um, where he says, uh, he says, um, I worry about you. And Gilly says, thank you for worrying about me. Right yeah. and they're they're plucking birds uh, getting getting quills out either to get them ready or to get quills to write with or something. They're pulling the feathers out of out of birds and they're, this is sort of they're at Castle Black. this is before he takes her to Town and and uh, makes her that the, the maid in the in the brothel yeah. Um, in daycare, yeah <laughs> right, exactly, which is nice. It's very progressive that they offer that benefit. For yeah. their prostitutes, right? They're they're a uh, like a unionized employee-owned brothel or something. like The that.
0: prostitute lessons in this episode are like managerial and about human resource, <laughs> as opposed to like touch her butt, and, like not butt. But...
1: Fair wages for fair work, Pete.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Oh man, that made me. Did that make anyone else think of, of Skyrim? Honest pay for honest work. Am I the only person?
1: Oh who yeah, that. Yeah. That, well...
0: yeah. Someone um, got so, an
1: arrow um, in the head, but I didn't see
2: it. <laughs> I thought it was the knee. I thought it was the knee.
0: I was an eventualist, like, but I took an arrow in the face.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, from your grit, right? Like, you know, back, back in, full, in full badass mode. Um, not civilized at all by her encounter with Jon Snow. She's still as wildling as ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wild hearts can't be tamed. <laughs> um,
0: I'm going to go jump a horse blind. It's great.
2: Uh, so I, 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 yeah. No, oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I, ha- I actually, like, have a list that I made that is really, like, uh, a dozen, maybe 18 items long of all the different permutations on this relationship of custodianship or agency. And it begins, it begins like, with Dantos spiriting Sansa away. Goes through the just the the um, many pointed star of Fustercluck at Baylor Sept, <laughs> where you know the, where Tommen is catechized by Tywin about what the what the most important um, aspects of a king there, and you, you see uh, are and you see Tywin uh, exercising sort of agency and custodianship uh, of Tommen and actually kind of ripping him away from Cersei. Taking him under his arm and like literally bodily walking him away, um, but also sort of schooling him in what Tommen's uh, obligations to his people are going to be, right? Like, was the holy king a good king? No. Was the strong king a good king? No. Was the just king a good king? No. The wise king is a good king. And the wise king is one who. Who is willing to enter into a relationship of agency with advisors and have and sort of outsource his will and outsource his his kingly agency his royal agency to uh to advisors and then also Jamie saying to Tom as he walks in i 'm here to take care of you i 'm here to look out for you right like this relationship of looking out uh, looking out for um Aria and the Hound. I mean, I, I could continue, and I think I will as we as we sort of push on through the episode. But i shouldn't let I shouldn't let, uh, I shouldn't let uh, more time go on without Pete giving his Downton Abbey scene oh, for this particular sure. uh, for this particular episode. Uh,
0: it's really great to hear your take on it because I feel like it it fills in some gaps on my take on it, which came from a bit of a different direction. Uh, my Downton Abbey moment. And I like to pick Downton Abbey moments that feel like they're really peripheral to what's happening in the main plot of the episode. Uh, cause it's a down moment. It's like, oh, these, these tea, uh, this tea in here is strange tea. I don't know how it will mix with the other teas, right? And it's like, oh, <laughs> this is about that. It's about ethnicity. Um, but, uh, but, um, for me, it was the moment between Davos and Shireen, right? The little girl, the little princess, where he's explaining to Shireen the difference between a pirate and a smuggler, right? And it's like, oh, you know, like, and... And and he's like, oh well, see, if a good smuggler, nobody knows, is never famous, and all this other stuff. And he has a line where he said, where where he says, you know, you know, your father, uh, was. It, I wrote it down. Your father lacks an understanding of the finer points of bad behavior. Right. Was the line that really stuck with me, and and I liked it. I really liked it because there is, as as you said, there's an element of custodianship in it. Like there's a custodianship between Davos and Shireen, as he says it. There's also a custodianship between Davos and Stannis, where he's like, I am kind of helping Stannis understand these parts of the world that they don't, that they, that he doesn't quite get. Right? It's important that I'm around. But there's also this aspect that I felt flowed through a lot of these relationships, and I, I wonder exactly how many of the relationships you pointed out, the relationships I pointed out, cover a lot of the same ground, where somebody uh, does something that is what we would consider to be flagrantly illegal under our contemporary norms, right, like something very bad, something that's very morally problematic, something that's very legally problematic, something that's like an oath-breaking thing or something that's otherwise like, you know, bad behavior, but is done for sort of a necessary reason, uh, right, or is, or is done sort of in service uh, in, a, in a sort of clever way that uh, that kind of gets around some of the reasons why it might be bad. Right, so a good example, you know, is Littlefinger, right? Littlefinger absconds with Sansa after, you know, plotting this assassination of Joffrey, and it's pretty clear that Littlefinger understands the finer points of bad behavior, you know, how to go about doing this. Uh, how to go about doing this thing. Lady Oleana with Marjorie, right, is like how, you know, okay, this, 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 this king was easy, the next one, this king was hard, the next one will be easier. Right, this idea that she understands the finer points of how to deal with, like, the necessary evils. So, you know, so Shane, so I guess I'm sort of halfway between Shana's take on the episode and Matt's take on the episode with regards to the Hound in particular, where, you know, Shana sees the bleakness and the murder uh, that that the Hound has to undertake in this hostile world, which is, like, totally legit in what he's talking about. And Matt, you're seeing the custodial relationship where the Hound and Arya are, like, caring for each other or, like, the Hound is kind of trying to rooster Cogburn Arya, which is how my dad explained it to me. That he's like, It's like a true grit situation uh, when I talked to him on Easter. And in the middle, there's this idea of, like, the hound is doing bad things, but he feels like he's doing them in like a clever way that implies an understanding of how they work, and that is going to lead to outcomes that the hound wants. Um, I mean, for me, it culminated in the in the end of the episode, uh, which you know we don't want to get spoilery about it, but it was very intense and portentous, uh, with the with the chains like the, the, the broken chains clattering out of the barrels that were hurled by the catapults over the walls of marine, uh, right? And this idea that it's like, I'm going to violate all of your social norms. I'm going to break all your chains, break all your laws. Because right? so to me, the breaker of chains is somebody who doesn't obey the rules. It's somebody who doesn't obey like, the moral codes that they're supposed to be obeying. Um, and is that a good thing? Sometimes it is sometimes it feels like a good thing but it's also kind of a bad thing I don't know
2: Sure I mean well and it's this idea of like relationships of custodianship and and agency are not always positive right like there there slavery is a relationship where mm-hmm. you know custodianship and agency are sort of violated mm-hmm. um they're they're at the sort of other end of the spectrum from the kind from the uh the very positive In terms of affect, and in terms of like how it functions, uh, the 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 very positive. uh, I I worry about you. I like it that you worry about me. It's nice to be worried about. You know, (laughs) I don't think the slaves of Marine are pleased that their masters worry about them. You know, Um, and 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 that Daenerys gives them new new cause to worry. Uh, new cause to worry now, right? So it seems, I mean, like, sometimes there's sort of a typology, sometimes um, uh, game uh, episodes of Game of Thrones function as as sort of an anthology in which we see all the different types of a thing. And this is one where I think it's all the different kinds of sort of agency or, or custodianship, right? Like, the idea that Daenerys is sort of the mother of her people, that that's, you know, that that's what they call uh, that's what they call her, and that that she has this sort of relationship of kind of acting on their behalf and whatnot. Um, it goes, you know, uh, it goes, it goes on and on and on. Yeah.
0: I mean, one I, thing. Is it, oh, go ahead, Shannon.
1: Oh, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, the marine scene, if you don't mind. Um, oh, yeah, please. Because I, I want to talk. We've been talking uh, over the past few weeks about uh, storytelling and just the showmanship of that scene with the, you know, the pissing contest, and then especially uh, Daenerys when we're talking about uh, agency and control and cons- uh, custodianship. Uh, Daenerys making this big scene that I'm not the one freeing you, I'm not making you do anything, you're the ones making the choice um, which I think is um, was repeated in this episode of people who are, really want to be the Custodians in control of others because Daenerys wants to be in control of the slaves, they're part of her army that she's gonna use to take over the Seven Kingdoms presumably But these custodians saying, "Oh no, you have the power. I'm not the one in charge." Much like uh, Tywin doing this to Tommen, saying, "You know, oh, you're the one who uh, is going to be the king. Um, You know, you can choose what kind of king you're going to be, and you can listen to whatever advisors you want." But you know, of course, he's saying, "You're going to listen to me, right?" And even if Tommen doesn't understand that, the audience is going to understand that, Um, and. Uh, I guess we've talked about this before uh, with Daenerys and the relation, the weird relationship between the Daenerys story and just the idea of slavery and like this white savior ness of it. But it, it, it's just uh, interesting to me how uh, they play it, where she's the mother, but on the other hand, she doesn't. She pretends not to be the mother. She's like, you know, I, I don't know. I will throw that back to you, uh, what you make of that, guys. Well,
0: I mean, we want to talk about... Uh, so, so to talk about advisors, Daenerys and advisors, right? And Daenerys, and also Daenerys and sort of how to what degree she shares her agency with the people that she is leading, um, right? We saw the social dynamic between... We were introduced to this mass, massive theme of Daenerys' story... Uh, in, in this idea of buy-in, really. This idea of, like, I'm inducing you to follow me without forcing you to follow me. But by the way, I'm also forcing you to follow me. <laughs> and I just happen to be lucky that I'm not being called upon to use the force that I have at my disposal to compel you to follow me. And this was first introduced with Viserys and Daenerys' varying levels of success, we'll call it, uh, in the same way that we'll call the Jamie Cersei scene problematic. We'll call this varying <laughs> levels of success. Uh, getting the Dothraki to do what they want, right? And Daenerys learns the Dothraki customs. She talks with the Dothra- Dothraki prostitute in- instructors. She, like, learns all the stuff, and uh, she earns their respect. And she participates in their customs and in their rituals, and they love her. And then Viserys is like, I am, I am the king, and I am in charge, and you've got to do what I have to say. And, and they don't respect him, and they don't follow him, and he has no power. Uh, and so this, this idea that it's been the case all throughout that Daenerys is able to induce people to follow her. But there's also this idea of, of that Daenerys is in charge. And Daenerys is, does not really give as much to her advisors as uh, the advisors would like her to. You know, that Daenerys makes her own decisions. right? All of her advisors, she turned to her most trusted advisors and, di- and di- disagreed with all of them as to who to send to fight the champion. Right, you know, like Jorah's like send me, and he's like, well, he's a pretty trusted advisor, but I'm not gonna listen to him. Ah, you know, like uh, Barristan Selmy's like send me, and he's like, well, he's a pretty trusted advisor, but I'm not gonna listen to him. And we don't have strong Bellwas to break the format on this one, but uh, we missed strong. Poor went out for strong Bellwas, which was the second biggest error in this plot Mm -hmm. of this episode. The the guy who in the books is uh, gets to fight the champion. But yeah, just this idea that like Daenerys seems to be increasingly of the opinion. That she needs to make her own decisions by herself, she's sort of going in the opposite direction from Tywin, and she's also, uh, and this is, so she's becoming this kind of like aristocratic Luke Skywalker, uh, you know, destiny person, um, which is a problematic from a democratic standpoint. And then she's encountering a whole lot of people that do exactly what Tywin says that they should do, like the thirteen of Karth, right? But they must be very wise because they all have, they're all advisors to everybody else, and some of them have magical clone advisors that also help them and stuff. You know, and like the people of Marine, you know, they certainly are very sophisticated and must keep counsel as they all sit in their sarongs or whatnot up on the walls up there. The Yunkai, the the slavers of Yunkai are referred to as the Wise Masters. I, I don't know if they say that in the show, but that is their name in the books, the name of the slaver class of Yunkai, which is, of course, the dude who Daenerys scares with the dragons. You know, he's like, well, I killed the guy in and I kill you too, and he's like, ah... So, so yeah, so Daenerys seems to be going the other way from Tywin at the same time that she's also kind of, like, mighty whiteying it. I don't know, Matt, what do you think about it?
2: Uh, About Daenerys the great white savior or about Daenerys's thing there? I mean, I thought that the particular genius of what she said was that she used used their points of vanity or she used the things that they were bragging about that these three men were bragging about, or two men, I guess, because the third one, to break the pattern, why do things happen in three? Because it takes two to set a pattern and one to break it. Um, she is the two who set the pattern. Uh, she used their own reasoning against them, like uh, i'm I've never lost in single combat. that's why I need you standing next to me. you know i'm'm I'm, uh, I've been with you from the beginning, and I need you to continue with me until the end, right? Um, when, when in fact, her real aims are ulterior to this, which is you know, she wants her some some sexy, sexy Dario. Uh, you know, to go do some sexy killing, right? And like, did did you notice? It it seemed to me that she had like sexy face on. She was doing not not totally duck face, but but sort of uh, I don't know, sort of model face a little bit. Like, uh, let's see if I can do it because we're on a YouTube video and this smize. is uh, you know, it's hey, a it's, it's a. Smizes. Thing.
0: Smizes. Smizes.
2: Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and if you're if you're missing if you're listening on the audio recap, that's why you need to watch the YouTube video of some of these <laughs> things. So that you can see uh, you know, that that was like uh that wasn't a full blue steel, that was like Latigra, you know, it's a softer right. look, more for catalog and stuff.
0: Cannon, like do you wanna give that a shot?
2: Or no? <laughs>
1: No, I can't do it. I've tried smizing before, and I just look like I'm blind and I'm just squinting. Oh, so okay. I'll never be a model, so, <laughs> a five-foot-three <laughs> model. Oh, well.
0: Uh, <laughs> that makes I'll, try, I'll try I'll try like... oh, No,
2: no. <laughs> that was a, <laughs> that was a, a Dowager Countess uh, yes. saying something's wrong with the tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, impression. But did, did it strike you that in our first our first glimpse of her uh, riding up to Marine, like, she was making sexy face as she, like, rode around on her, uh, as she rode around astride her horse, you know? And. Um, yeah. I
0: mean, this is why I hate the new Dario. I mean, I yeah. know Shana can confirm this for me, but the new Dario, Dario, the most important thing about Dario is, as I've said this before, is he needs to be sexually attractive and he needs to stand out. And he needs to be like, oh, like Daenerys is has this guy has a and so everything else that this guy does is lent additional important meaning because of his allure and because of how attractive he is, and and so you know to any extent that Dario's presence in the story is metaphorical or thematic, it's it really depends. On Daenerys being really attracted to him. And now Amelia Clark is doing her darndest to, like, smize up a storm and, like, look like she's attracted to this guy. But I, this new Dario, I don't. He seems like a non character. He doesn't seem to have uh, anything about him that really stands out. He just sort of looks like they gave an extra, a bunch of extra lines and some thicker armor than usual. I mean, oh. I defer to you guys about the new Dario. Shayna, go ahead.
1: I mean, I think he's kind of pretty, but this might be informed by the fact that he um, I used to watch Nashville, and he was on Nashville, and he sang very well with, you know, acoustic guitar, you know, doing the falsetto. You know, my heart goes doki-doki for the falsetto. Um, but, yeah, he doesn't really uh, have the swagger that Dario in the Books has, I don't think. Um, he did kiss the naked woman uh, handle of his... Sword, but he hasn't been stroking them as much as he does in the books, so that's disappointing. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, he has the sort of like boyish, but still has the rugged look that I think um, a Daenerys would be attracted to. Um, he's not a uh, Caldrogo, Dro- Dro- but you know, I guess she could, you know, he's a, a little bit of a heartthrob, not super heartthrobby, but I, I buy it. hmm. I mean, I would say
2: like... I, I gave I up say, on
1: Nashville.
2: <laughs> yeah, what, at what point? Fiona and I are still watching it.
1: Oh, are you uh, really? Is he still yeah. on it?
2: Uh, well, no, he's on this now. <laughs> he's spending <laughs> like... He's spending six months of the year in Northern Ireland or... or no, uh, these scenes are shot... Where are these scenes shot? Like Morocco or Morocco. something. Oh, yeah. I don't
0: know. He's in Northern Ireland. He'd
1: be with my baby. Where's... My baby, my oh, bikers,
2: I'm so sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, a, you get a recap on all the shows when you're uh, when you watch the overthinking of things. That's our that's our you know unique competitive advantage. That's our value proposition.
1: Veep was so, really who, great last night. So, just saying. What was it? a Veep? Oh, I yeah. like
0: Mad Men last night. It
1: was pretty good. Oh, I like Mad Men too. Someone give Sally Draper a hug already, man. <laughs> I haven't wanted to give someone a hug so badly since, like, last season of Hannibal with Will Graham, but, like, man, Sally, okay, sorry, Game of Thrones. <laughs> Sally is <laughs> not I mean, on Game of Thrones, about... but seriously, how much better would the show be if she were...
2: <laughs> Can we talk about um, uh, some of these other relationships of agency or of sort of these other custodial relationships that are that are in the show? Like, one that that struck me as sort of being important was the whole... Uh, the return to the brothel. All the important things happen in brothel, brothels uh, with the Red Viper and with Hilarious Sand um, because uh, they they sort of use the prostitutes, they kind of use sexual proxies sort of for one another. Um, uh, it reminds me of something actually, Desaad in Philosophy in the Bedroom talks about the importance of mirrors uh, when you're boning. You need lots <laughs> of mirrors around you because the mirrors multiply uh, by kind of multiplying the complexity of the sexual molecule, by multiplying the angles on the thing that, that you are doing and also watching by making you at once a participant and an observer they sort of multiply your your sexual pleasure. And it, it strikes me that, that they do that. The, 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 our Dornish couple here does that, but with actual living people, mm. you know, in place of the mirrors, right? They are sort of, Mirrors of of one another, and then in comes Tywin, and the whole issue with Tywin is, Gregor was your agent, right? He was acting on your behalf. He was acting under your orders. And Tywin, uh, what does he say? Categorically, right? Disclaims uh, that responsibility, that sort of relationship of agency, and that relationship of sort of supervision over his uh, over his subordinates, but. Still has it enough to sell out Gregor to. Uh, 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 which one is it? Oberyn. Oberyn. Yeah. I, I, get, I get the Dornish confused. Like everything that's going on down in Dorn. Like, they all look
1: like the same now. <laughs> uh,
2: everything going on down in Dorn. It's
0: just a tangle of limbs. It's just. <laughs> the whole country is just like, just like a kimbo. And, like, and like olive oil. Oh hi, hey! Over its Doran, am over. Oh hey, Doran, I'm. My, let me move my butt. <laughs> all the
2: snake, it's a, it's a many-headed snake. All the sand snakes, you know, yes. like, um, it's a, yeah, it's just a, a mess. It's just a giant, uh, you know, Mediterranean orgy down there. <laughs>
0: Um, <laughs> as, opposed to, as opposed to our, like, right and proper Teutonic and Celtic orgies <laughs> in every other part of this.
2: I guess, I mean, I guess you can sort of distinguish among the different uh, regions by the character of their orgies, right? Like, <laughs> up in Craster's Keep, it's a rutting, incestuous orgy. In Molestown, it's a filthy, unhygienic, uh, you know... Um, that that guy who won the the Glee competition show looking orgy. Right? Like white right, like white guy with dreadlocks, you know, mm. standing around the standing around the keg at the party and, and singing redemption song with a bunch of his other white bros. Uh and the um So, uh, oh, so, but, uh, Tywin, uh, sells him, sells him out. So, right, like, I'm not responsible for that guy, but I'm responsible enough to get him here so that, so that you can kill him, uh, uh, you can kill him later. And then, like, the money line in, in that scene is, you know, uh, over into Tywin, you need us. Tywin, we need each other right so there 's this relationship of sort of mutual mutual dependency of interdependency um, that 's not that 's looked at as dyadic right all these things i think it 's important that all of these things are dyads they 're not looked at as as sort of large groups of people or large segments of society with their uh forces you know productively in in tension in a, in a kind of detente it 's looked at as a series of dyads. Uh, where one person is sort of looking after, or um, or kind of farming out uh, the interests, their interests, uh, you know, in order to have uh, productivity. I mean, at the beginning, when Tywin says to Tommen, you know, who are you going to choose between the Lord with the land army or the Lord with the uh, with the navy, and they're going at each other. It's conceived of as being like two. Uh, households, both alike in dignity, right? It's conceived of as being like uh, adjudicating uh, among or between, rather, members of a dyad uh, between uh, two, among three or more, uh, adjudicating between uh, two and intervening um, in a dyad. So these these relationships, and then finally the one that I that I want to um, oh sorry uh, the Night's Watch uh, and and the Wall uh, and their custodianship over the whole realm. Uh, of Westeros, and then finally the one that that uh, my last one that I that I thought was sort of interesting was Podrick and Tyrion, who mm-hmm. have a great scene here. That's you know that's extremely I mean that's extremely touching and and kind of heartbreaking in a way because uh the, you know because Tyrion actually is a good agent for a good custodian of Pod. Um, though, you know, uh, Tyrion is himself in this kind of custodial relationship with the state being locked up, um, and, uh, and Pod, his squire, is supposed to be sort of his agent looking out for his interests and has been sort of constrained in his ability to do that. He can't, um, take care of, he can't take care of Tyrion completely, but still smuggles in some pens and paper, still smuggles in some sausage and hard cheese and like, uh, you know, and, um... But Tyrion says, dude, what are you doing? Sell me out, you know? Mm. There'll be no, like, there's no other move for you here. And so Tyrion, in fact, like, putting Pod's interests first, acting on behalf of Pod, or giving Pod permission to act on behalf of Podrick, you know, uh, in, in doing that. I don't know, what did you guys, uh, I've been going on for a while, what did you guys think of, of that scene with Tyrion and Pod in jail?
0: I mean, I loved it. I thought you agree it was a great scene. Um, I think it was interesting to see Tyrion appeal to Pod uh, to get him to try to rat him out, and then to praise his loyalty afterward. Um, Just to sort of reassure him that he'd proven whatever virtue he might accomplish. Um, It was interesting because I don't really believe... Tyrion doesn't seem entirely resigned to his fate at this point. Uh, He doesn't seem to be entirely despairing he definitely doesn't see any way out for, for Podrick, but, and I guess he's sort of, like, willing to play things out and see how things work, but he doesn't seem to be at peace with being executed at this point or, like, in having a panic or being sad. So Tyrion's in an interesting place um, where at one point he, see, yeah, he seems to have no options, but he also seems to not be acting like he has no options. And I don't know whether that's just the resilience of his personality or whether he's just sort of good at handling himself in crises. Uh, but yeah, I can see the relationship with Custodianship, and I can also see, again, the, the bad behavior relationship. Tyrion trying to impart to Podrick a lesson about what sort of bad behavior you should invoke, even if it seems like, you know, oh, you're, you, you're really loyal, and you prize being loyal, and, and you're loyal to me, and I value that, and you value me, and that's awesome. But you really need to lie under oath, right? Like, and this is something you need to do right now, and it's important. And um, it's interesting. Well, he's doing it sort of out of love, right? Tyrion's doing this for Podrick out of fondness and out of out of thanks and gratitude, right? So it is interesting that uh, as much as this is... Just, so that's a good example of what Shannon was talking about in terms of naive cynicism, right? Like this idea that, uh, yeah, you know, Podrick, in, in the naive, cynical way of looking at things, maybe Podrick rats out Tyrion because he has to. But this scene in which... Podrick doesn't want to rat out Tyrion, and then Tyrion wants Podrick to rat him out, but you know he doesn't want to, and it's like, well, it's because I love you and you love me, and all this other stuff. Like this paints a much more optimistic idea of a of a of a world in which there is not really a legal positivism, meaning there is not a, a legal framework where I guess maybe legal there probably is legal positivism to an extent, but. But yeah, this is not an absolute framework of, like, this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do. There's a lot of gray areas, there isn't a natural monopoly of force. You know, people have to bend, bend the rules to get around, and morality is not really particularly ingrained into the social structure in any meaningful way. Uh, although that's another thing we could talk about, is the the talk about the twins that we hear, because that's another issue of custodialship that hangs over all of this, which is the gods and their custodialship of what's happening um, in Westeros, which is talked about more in this episode than others. Um, but yeah, but just the idea that, that yeah, this is a place where cool things are happening to bad people, but there is positive, there is love there, and there is good stuff there, and there's loyalty there, and we shouldn't be entirely cynical. We shouldn't say that this, this show is great because Pod is forced to betray his master because he has no other options. It's great because of the relationship between the people where they find a way to be kind to each other in these circumstances. You know, Shana, what do you think?
1: No, I think that's a really great way of Putting it, and those are the relationships that I stay, you know, with this show. Before um, I think, um, I was just thinking back because my mind, I guess, can't stay away from orgies. But um, it, it scene sort of reminded me in a very odd way of the scene um, where Oberyn was and Ellaria uh, was talking to that uh, that young prostitute who is a male prostitute because the other prostitutes were making out in the background. Um, where it's a similar situation where they know that he has to be working, um, you know, selling his body, um, and, like, that's... He's just stuck in this world. Um, He seems to be enjoying it somewhat, maybe, Um, but they're saying, like, um, they're imparting their wisdom to him in the way of, like, look, as long as you're here, enjoy yourself. You are young. One day you're going to be old like me. Of course, Oberon isn't old at all, but you know, that there is good in this world, and but it's short-lived, so you have to take it. Um, and we can have relationships with one another, even if it's as simple as a relationship of, like, let's just have sex and share pleasure together. Um, and yeah, so there are little slivers of humanity in this world. Um, and I, those are the scenes I appreciate most, I'll say.
0: I felt like that same sense came out of the scene with Lady Oleana where she talked about how all the sufferings of the world are a tray of cakes next to death, right? And the, the, there's, there's something unspoken there is that – or implied as sort of a corollary is that they are also a tray of trays of cakes, right? Like I this whole <laughs> – the idea that the world has cake in it. And, and then I feel like that's I, – I, I keep coming back to this as something that's so important to this story. This relationship everybody has with food, and how we're really starting to see it, really start to to eat away at, and we'll eat it away at, but like cause big problems for people, right? Like it, the food supply is really starting to get scarce, and people are starting to do desperate things to each other, uh, in, in for these kind in these kinds of situations, and it's sort of creeping up on us. But yeah, this idea that you know, uh, I mean, the the Shakespearean line is what, like you know, the they'll think that because thou is virtuous, there'll be no more cakes and ale. Just the idea that. That you know, good times. The good times will continue to roll, whether you are on board with it or not. Oh, I
2: thought I thought the the uh, Shakespeare line you were thinking of was um, from Measure for Measure, Act Three, Scene One, when Claudio says, "The weariest and most loathed worldly life that age, ache, penury, and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death," <laughs> <laughs> which is a slightly which is a slightly different emphasis. Uh, right on on a similar point, and and makes clear what's going. I mean, what's going on here? You know, if Game of Thrones is a world about the kind of is a is a work about the sensory experience, right? And and we've talked on this recap series about uh, how that's the case. Uh, the sensory experience of sort of living in a Middle Ages esque uh, world, like there are good sensory experiences also. You
0: mm-hmm. know, yeah, it's not all, it's not all bad things. I mean, it's it's, it's nice really inspired. Yeah, dichotomies. There's dyads and all that stuff. There's there's rabbit stew. Yeah. Lemon cakes. <laughs> yeah.
1: You like lemon cakes.
0: Uh, can I make a, a, stray, a stray comment about about Sansa? No, nope. moving right along. Please. Right. <laughs> so about the gods. <laughs> now, I just thought it was really cool how when Sansa arrived in the rowboat, the first thing that she's called upon to do, before we even know who is on top of the boat, is, uh, hey, you're at the bottom of the lap time for you to climb this ladder. right? right? I thought that was a really, yeah, yeah that, that was really cool. The climb. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, the climb. The climb. But, uh, yeah, and then there's the, um, there, I, I did want to briefly bring up the farmer, the farmer who, who, uh, who helps out the Hound and aria and, uh, and, and his, his sort of custodial ships, and also his relationships with good and bad things. Right, because the Hound, interestingly, the Hound insults the farmer after killing him, I guess, or just hitting him in the head, I think killing him, um, Yeah, if he was dying. yeah he's, he's dead, he's dying, uh, saying he couldn't protect himself. Right? He would not be able to protect himself when winter is coming. But this is an episode of all sorts of people who can't protect themselves and are relying on other people to protect them and, and to help them. Right? So nobody can, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives, Right, as Ned Stark would say. So it's, it's unreasonable to think that just because this guy couldn't protect himself, what was he trying to do in bringing on the Hound but protecting each other, right? Creating a relationship of mutual custodialship that the, the Hound seems to have abandoned and not cared about. Um, and then, but he does, he talks about the gods and he talks about guest right with regards to the gods. And this is, again, this is also really important for the story. Um, and I mean, those of us who have read the books know more about it than those who don't, but no spoilers. But just this idea that um, that that the that. The, everybody is kind of ta- still talking about what the phrase did to the Starks at the end of last season, and there is a sense that there's going to be some sort of divine retribution. That the gods are going to come after, um, the gods are going to come after uh, uh, the phrase. Uh, they're coming after Walder Frey, and he's going to burn in the seven hells because of what happened to him. Um, and of course, you know we can take Melisandre's word from last episode. It's like, well, the only hell we live in is the only hell that exists is the one we live in right now. So maybe while they're afraid we'll burn in this world, we don't know. Don't so quit
2: know. complaining about all those rapes, y'all. <laughs> I mean, Melisandre, you know, is right. Uh, is right there, you know.
0: Melisandre doesn't understand, doesn't care about individual human suffering because of her obsession with collective apocalyptic myth, right? Like that's kind of her deal, and that's why she burns the seven because the seven are about I, i'm reminded of um, did you guys Matt were you there when we went to go see virgin spring the ingmar bergman film at I was not the there. film festival thing have you ever seen it have you guys ever seen this movie
1: that is one i haven't seen
0: <laughs> it's not a particularly well known film it's a black and white film with max von Sydow. and i bring it up because it's about guest right to an extent uh, it's about it takes place in scandinavia like the actual real life phenomenon of like hospitality rules and how you're not supposed to murder people who come to your house and I, just, I, lo- I think the movie really, really communicates through its visual language and its pacing what it really means for winter to be coming. And for, uh, for people to rely on the hospitality of strangers in order to survive. Like, why are there these big strong rules about guest right? Why are there these really severe religious and cosmic penalties for not being hospitable to your guests? Well, it's because you're going to go out there, and there's going to be no food. and It's going to be in the middle of the winter, and if you, 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 there's like one house, right? And it's like 20 miles through the snow to any other house. So if this house doesn't let you in, you're dead. So how do you negotiate to get into this house? Well, there's a set of social rules that everybody establishes in this area, and and what the movie is about is about this guy takes in these two wanderers into his home uh, to, to keep them safe in in the winter. And then he discovers that one of them has raped his kill, raped and killed his. both of them have raped and killed his daughter. And then the movie is about him conducting his vengeance, which involves like very Ingmar Bergmanish scenes of him whipping himself with sapling branches and like taking out his sword and all, of it giving you this like very intense sense. It's all medieval and this very intense sense of like the gravity of these sorts of decisions and what they really mean outside of the context of of story time. Um, and just I don't know, just that there is really something meaningful about this this. There, there is a social order of mutual custodialship, even though the government isn't the thing that is enforcing it, and even it isn't. If I say it, if it's not legally. If there's no legal positivism. This is not a rule that's there because the king says that it is. This is something that people seem to think and feel in their hearts that you don't mess with your guests and you don't kill them and they don't kill you. You know, and, and this is this is a rule, and it's and there will be a retribution if you don't follow this rule. I think that really matches up with this idea that like. You know, people need to listen to their advisors. People need to, like, you know, pay attention to – they need to take care of each other. Um, you know, this sort of thing. It's, it seems to all relate to each other. And this idea that, like, the seven as anthropomorphic gods are representations of human roles that do these things. And, of course, the, the only one that the hound cares about is the stranger, right? Like, the, the only person, the only human role that the hound cares about is the one that murders people because that's how the hound sees himself. The hound is a naive cynic who's like, knights are all murderers, there's nothing good in the world, it's all about murderers, I was abused as a child, and, I, and I'm very traumatized, and I hate my brother, and all this stuff is happening, and, like, it's all crap, right? And his, like, you know, his attempts to sort of help the Stark girls at various points are sort of little glimmers that there might be something else there to him. But, um, but there's the other six gods, other than the stranger, right? And then his aria says, well, there's only one god, and it's death, right? And, and, and what do you say not today? That's the only thing that you do. But this, 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 we're getting introduced at various points to what everybody else believes and what these all have to do with social order. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting. It was an interesting piece of world building. We haven't seen a lot of that kind of world building in the show, and I thought it was, like, cool to build up some of the texture of what was going on here.
1: Um, well, isn't that what on, the show... Go ahead, it, I mean, I guess in if, sort of if you zoom out, maybe you could say that the show in general is sort of about what happens when there are... Um, You went from one belief system, you know, from, uh, you know, in these seven gods to multiplicity of belief systems and uh, therefore uh, people's, you know, uh, customs, you know, what what they think politeness is, what their morality is, how and how all of these beliefs sort of uh, clash and also fall away during times of war. I did want to point out an interesting fact that I learned recently, um, which is that in the Middle Ages, um, house sigils and so forth weren't only used, you know, on banners when you were in war, but actually were used on um, signage that you would put in front of your home specifically so that when people were um, you know, traveling through your area they would know it was your house so that they could come and stay there for the night um, on their travel. So they would be told previously, oh if you go through this town stop at the you know the sign that has a hammer on it because that is the sigil of this family you know that builds things and they will be good to you because I you know through word of mouth I know that they're good uh, for you which uh, it and it's interesting uh because George R R Martin is so um about the historical details about the wars about the food um etc um but he actually didn't really focus on this for him the house sigils really only have to do with either war or marriages you know political machinations so i thought that was an interesting uh, omission on his part
0: mm-hmm. Although it was interesting that they asked him what house he fought for, and then when he said he fought for the, she said when Arya said he fought for the Tullys, he was welcome. Right. Not the same thing at all. Not the same phenomenon at all. But interesting that there are aspects of these houses that filter through in the way people thought, think about them. We we saw it when Brian and Jamie met the dudes in the road, um, and and they were gonna kill him or whatever and all that other stuff. Um, yeah, totally, totally awesome. There's lots of cool. I uh, I was actually. Uh, showing my my girlfriend the, the royal coat of arms of the United Kingdom today and pointing out, like, that's the lion of House Plantagenet, and that's, like, the the Scottish unicorn that's been combined with it. And, like, here's the Tudor Rose on Queen Elizabeth's coat of arms. And it's just it's just really – I just really like that stuff. It's all great. Um, so any, any, we're, we're we're now longer – the recap is now longer than the episode, which is something that they strive for in the community recaps, but which I like to think our show – uh, is a little pithier than that. Well, I don't know why I would ever think our shows are pithy. I don't even know why I would say that. We are, we are, we contain multitudes. All right, we are voluminous. That is the name of the website that you would go to if you wanted to read more of this sort of stuff. But anyway, any final thoughts about uh, this episode about the Breaker of Chains, about the Nylons and the song Chain Gang? Uh, anything? Uh, two Chains? Breaker of Two Chains? Anybody?
1: Oh, I don't want to get accused uh, on
0: Twitter of of missing a two chains reference because we did that once this season with two swords. I'm not going to miss it again. So, on behalf of Ryan, who can't be here, I'm going to say, "Breaker of Two Chains." <laughs> All right, uh, Matt, do you have anything to add to contribute to the conversation before we uh before we uh, uh, re- retire to our own various nights that are dark and full of terrors? This
2: is uh, I I'll say only um that uh, it's good to be back podcasting with you. Because uh, during this week's Overthinking It podcast, uh, you were busy and couldn't join us, which makes it unique as podcasts go.
0: <laughs> what does that is that mean? Is bad or good?
2: No, no, no. it's it's uh, it's what Tyrion says about Cersei about Jeffrey's oh. murder. <laughs> that Cersei was the only person who could not be involved, uh, which which makes it unique as murders in King King's Landing go. Yeah, that's
0: true. <laughs> I podcast like a crazy mom killing other people's orphans. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> By which I mean I do it a lot, and with them uh Shayna, any final thoughts about the episode
1: uh no that's that's about it. I just wanted to uh politely ask uh people on the internet, please don't send me hate mail um uh due to my uh opinions about the rape scene you I mean you can, and I will uh read them and sob so if you want to make me cry, you can do that, I guess.
2: I get I, do, is anyone was anyone on board with the rape scene? Like, it, it was awful, and it was a bad choice, artistically, strategically, like, from every point of view, it, it was, you know... I will, uh,
1: I will say that after the episode, um, I spoke about this show with my dad, because I, we're Game of Thrones buddies, and I was like, man, that rape scene, and he's like, eh, was it? And then I felt really bad. So, I'm just gonna sit here and think about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I spoke with my dad about Game of Thrones this weekend, and one of his opinions of the matter was like, "That art, that girl, after murdering that guy, she would be really traumatized." <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, "Yep."
1: See, that is realism. That That's is not naive right. your cynicism.
0: <laughs> you're right. Can't say you're wrong. You're correct. Just keep watching. <laughs> keep watching the show. And I, I do hope that we are able to leave this terrible scene and terrible error for what it is and that the show will recover, I hope. I heard rumors they were gonna try to retcon it. I don't even know if that's true. But whatever. I just I just hope this isn't the kind of game breaker that Anna Bates Gate 2013 was because I'm sick and tired of that garbage and I don't want any more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to see Cersei crying about this for the next I would rather and see now that makes me feel like a jerk. It's like I'd rather she pretend it don't happen. That's not what I mean. I mean I'd rather that in the show, I think the show will pretend that the show actually tells the story as it happened in the books, and it just turns out that that one scene was edited wrong. I mean I it's but, like my best case scenario. It's like my it's best. It's funny. Case. I
1: mean
2: because like Cer- Cersei is one of the the ways that like the show has had some success and and. Largely because of of the acting, which is tremendous, with Cersei, where she's kind of a shrewish herod in, in the books, um, she's really uh, sort of given a third dimension here. And like part part of it is is the legacy of sexual violence in her marriage to Robert, right? Like he was, you know, she she says that you know we never we never had sex where he didn't rape me, right? Like, and as a survivor of that of that violence, right? Like it it. I don't know. It it uh it it's not depicted, right? So it's it's sort of not exploitative in the way that a lot of um a lot of the sex like positive and negative in Game of Thrones is is exploitative. But the but the like I don't know, that the, that character has a like a really troubling and like profoundly painful history with sexual violence and like disregarding that was one of the real problems yeah. <laughs> with I mean, we, I don't know. We could go on, we could go on for another like, length of the whole episode with, with problems in, in the scene. I, I think that we've all been traumatized uh, by it, and, and my shrink tells me that, that we should just never speak of it again. That seems reasonable. My, my, my shrink is Don Draper, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, on his behalf, I will say this never happened. It will astonish you
0: how much... This never happened.
1: (laughs) Pizza house.
0: If you watch Mad Men this weekend, you know that sometimes Don Draper actually tells the truth, as rare as that is. Uh, Sometimes. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up, if there is a desire to talk about this scene, let's have a separate thread in the forums for it so that people don't have to necessarily deal with it in the main comment thread for the podcast. Uh, because it's just such a conversation stopper on every other aspect of what's going on in the show. Um, so I'll maybe set that up in the forums. We'll, we'll have like a black label forbidden Game of Thrones thread that people don't have to go into if they don't want to be bothered with this nonsense. But anyway, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the recap. You've just listened to a recap. We have been your second screen on your journey through one of television's most expensive and usually better than this uh shows which is great. Um no it was you know whatever. We'll talk about you know relative quality is something we can sus- discuss later. But please if you're watching this on YouTube subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll get lots of great Eurovision content. You'll get other recaps. You'll get the pop fixture show other sorts of cool video content from overthinking it. It's great stuff. Uh, I'm a big fan and you'd be a big fan too. If you listen to this on iTunes, subscribe to to do the trifecta. You know, make the three right, which is you got the TV recap, which is this in community. That's one iTunes podcast. You got the Overthinking It podcast, which is I you know three hundred and two, three hundred and three episodes, six years of pop culture discussions, just just lot, all the energy and of years of friendship and special guests and and all sorts of fun stuff. You can go back and listen to us talk about There Will Be Blood. It's hilarious. Uh, and then and then of course the try the third one, which is the TFT podcast, which is uh, a wonderful research project. On the psychology, the political science, the literary critical analysis of arts pertaining to by and about teenagers. Uh, started out as a Gossip Girl podcast, has grown into so much more. Please subscribe to all these. Check us out, read our articles, great articles, great content. Uh, But where can you find all these things? Is there some sort of central location where I can have all these things delivered to me by a a sort of decentralized computer network referred to as the Internet? Yes, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably
1: probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve...